Let's turn together in our Bibles this morning to John chapter 15 as we continue in our study of the book of John. We'll pick up right where we left off last week in verse 12 this morning. Again, we'll begin reading in just a moment, John 15 verse 12. Now, I think you might agree with me that life is lived in chapters, right? Regardless of how old we are or what stage in life we are in, our life can be broken down into chapters. We, we move through several distinct chapters where in those chapters, our priorities are focused primarily on one or two things. I'm 53 years old and uh, I've lived through lots of chapters in my life. When I was in college, my, my priority in that chapter was to graduate. And it was a close call, but I did. Uh, when I met and married my wife, our priority was to make a home together. And that's no small thing when you put two sinners in one household. When we had kids, our priority was discipling our boys in the hopes that one day they would love and follow Jesus. And now that our oldest is in college, we've begun a new chapter in our life. And by God's grace, I hope we experience more chapters. But here's the thing about chapters. Just when you figure out how to live faithfully in a given chapter, the next chapter is about to begin, right? Isn't that how it works? So when you're on the edge of a new chapter in life, most of us are asking one question. How's this going to work? Because entering a new chapter of life can be a scary time. How's this going to work? I've never been married before. How's this going to work? I've never had kids before. I've never been an empty nester before. I've never been retired before. How's this going to work? Many of you know that since the middle of March, we've been looking at one long conversation that Jesus has been having with his disciples as he prepares them for his soon coming death. So the disciples, you could say, are on the edge of a new chapter in their life, and they're rightly thinking, how's this going to work, Jesus? And as we saw last Sunday in the beginning verses of John 15, Jesus begins to answer how it will work as he describes this incredible metaphor about what having a relationship with him is like, that, that he's the vine and we are the branches and we produce fruit and the heavenly father is the gardener and he prunes the branches so that we might produce more fruit. And as he finishes that metaphor, the disciples could have asked, how's this gonna work? But they didn't have to because Jesus answers it for them in the verses that we're about to read this morning. So let's stand together in honor of the reading of God's word as we look at together what I've, call, uh, what I've entitled, How's This Gonna Work? Again, we are beginning in John 15, verse 12. The Lord Jesus says this, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You can be seated. May God bless the reading of his word today. So in these verses, what Jesus does is he's continuing to prepare the disciples 
for the new chapter in life that they're about to face, and he encourages them by covering three topics. Three main topics, that's sort of how I've broken down your outline this morning. And the first topic, number one, is how Jesus loves his followers. How Jesus loves his followers. Now, if I started to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, you would finish by saying, not bad. I think y'all were better than the eight o'clock. Very good. You know the song. So, let me ask you this. Does the Bible teach that God loves the world? Well, if John 3.16 is true, and it is, yes, he does. But as Pastor Russell stated last Sunday, God's love is unique towards those he has saved. Similar correlation would be for anybody who has kids that our love for our own children is unique compared to the other children that we know, right? See, not everyone is a child of God, regardless of what you hear news personalities or politicians say. The Bible has two categories and only two categories of people, saved and lost, sheep and goats, forgiven and unforgiven, those who are adopted into God's family and those who aren't. The world may not like that, but the categories are binary and they are clear in God's word. So Jesus has a particular love for his followers. It's a special saving love that's only accomplished by his own sacrifice on the cross. And so as the disciples here are walking along in this moment with Jesus from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus shares with them several things. The first thing he shares is the directive. Letter A on your outline would be the directive. That's verse 12. I want you to look in your Bibles at verse 12 because the directive has two parts. Look at it with me. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another. That's the first part of the directive. And it's emblematic of this whole passage because it begs the question, how will this work? <laughs> how will they love one another? Which is the second part of the directive, right? Keep reading. As I have loved you. Hmm. Now, when it comes to reading our Bibles, the command to love other people is not new here. No, you can, you can actually go all the way back to Leviticus 19 in the Old Testament where the, the command to us is to love your neighbor as yourself, which is actually a command that Jesus reiterates in Mark chapter 12 earlier in his ministry. Uh, if you remember Mark 12, a scribe walks up to Jesus and ask him, what's the greatest command in all of the scriptures? And Jesus gives him a twofold answer. Verses 30 and 31 of Mark 12, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So at that point, loving others was based on as you love yourself. But when we fast forward here to our passage today, to John 15, the command to love others has changed from loving your neighbors as yourself to now loving one another, as verse 12 says, as I have loved you. So what Jesus does in John 15 is he raises the bar to where now those who follow him aren't merely to love others as they love themselves, but to love others as he has loved us. Wow. So that begs another question. How does Jesus love his followers? <laughs> because if we're gonna love others, that would be important to know, don't you think? 
And we can recall back to Pastor Mark's Palm Sunday message where we looked at Romans 5. And in Romans 5, verses 7 through 8, the Apostle Paul says, for no one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, brothers and sisters, that's how God loves us. So there's a new directive. We don't just love others in some vague sort of superficial way. And we don't love others as we love ourselves. But we love others like Jesus loves us. Agape love. That's the Greek word that's being used here in John 15 for love. So what is agape love? Well, we have a working definition that we say around here at McGregor quite often. So I want you to repeat it with me. Agape love. Let's try that again. Agape love is an unconditional, self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of other people. That's agape love. And that's how God loves his children. So now it's our directive. Jesus provides the directive, but then he provides what the directive looks like in the demonstration. That'd be letter B on your outline. The demonstration can be found in verse 13. I want you to look at it in your Bibles with me. What he says there. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Now, that may be a familiar verse to you. you. You may have seen verse 13 on a military memorial or even mentioned at a military funeral. But brothers and sisters, the context of this kind of love is that we sacrificially love one another. So the starting place where agape love must begin is in the local body of Christ that you're a member of. Just another reason that church membership is so important. We can't obey this directive fully that we love one another as Jesus has loved us if we're not a member of a local church. And I praise God that we have a reputation here at McGregor for being both a giving church and a loving church. But one of the areas that I pray we will grow in as a church, starting with myself, is in the way that we sacrificially love one another. Christian love follows the sacrificial model of Jesus. And Jesus is essentially saying to the disciples here, this demonstration, this is what agape love looks like. Verse 13. And husbands, <laughs> there's a really important point of application here for us. Because there's a similar command just for us in Ephesians 5.25 where the Apostle Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ have loved the church and gave himself up for her. You want to guess at which word for love the Apostle Paul uses there? Agape. The unconditional, self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of your wife. Gentlemen, do you know why we as husbands are commanded to love our wives that way? Because it's hard. <laughs> and you need Jesus to do it, amen? We're not commanded to love our children. We love our children. But it's their way easier. She's a challenge sometimes. And look, guys, she's commanded to respect you, and that's no cakewalk either. 
But as husbands, we, are, we have a very specific command to agape our wife like Jesus agaped us. So that means we're gonna serve her in similar ways to how Jesus served the disciples. We're going to lead her and teach her and pray for her and forgive her and encourage her and sacrifice for her all in ways that are similar to Jesus. It also means that from time to time we will absorb the wrath of our wife's sin. Also similar to Jesus. Brothers, we are not Jesus. But we are to agape her in ways that point our wife to Jesus. Now let's be clear, the application in John 15 is not just limited to husbands. Jesus gave this directive and this demonstration for all who follow him. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down their life for their friends. John MacArthur says that only those who abide in him have the capacity to divinely love as Jesus loved. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's explaining how he loves all those who abide in him. And yes, the overt command for us is to agape one another, but the foundational underpinnings of our agape for each other is his agape for us. This is how Jesus loves his followers. That's topic number one. Topic number two that Jesus covers here is how Jesus addresses his followers. That's in verses 14 and 15. How Jesus addresses his followers. Occasionally people will ask me, do you go by Dave or David? And frankly, I don't care how you address me, I go by either. Uh, Some people call me Dave, Pastor Dave, or some people call me David or Pastor David. But there's only one person on the planet that calls me babe. And there's only one person on the planet I call sweetheart. And there's only two people that call me dad. You understand the point? How we address, how someone addresses you when they speak to you demonstrates the level of closeness that you have with them. That's what's going on here. Jesus is addressing the disciples in a brand new way in John 15. And it begins with verse 14. Look at it with me. That's the assumption that Jesus is making here in verse 14. Look at it with me. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you to do. So what's the new way Jesus addresses his disciples? As what? Friends, right. There are certain people that Jesus calls his friends and that's only those he saves. And there's an assumption about his friends as opposed to his enemies. Remember, we said there are only two categories that the Bible speaks of, of people, saved and lost, sheep and goats, friends of God and enemies of God. How do you tell the difference? Well, Jesus said his friends do what he commands them to do. It's not any more complicated than that. Now, the phrase here, if you do what I command you, is not some sort of call to work yourself into earning salvation. Salvation is by grace. But Jesus is simply stating an observable fact about those who follow Christ. That ultimately, by his grace, we do what he commands us to do. Do we do it perfectly every time? Heavens, no. 
But when we sin, we don't rationalize and excuse our sin. We repent from that sin and turn our desires and our obedience back to Christ. And by doing so, the work of the gospel is observable in us. That's the point of this assumption, that it's a fairly safe assumption that, that someone who does what Jesus commands him is his friend. And conversely, it's also a fairly safe assumption that someone who does not do what Jesus commands is not his friend. See, this statement goes to the very heart of the gospel. The gospel begins with God, not with us. God is the creator of all things, including you. He's holy, he's perfect in all that he does. He's loving, but the Bible also says he's wrathful towards sin. And what is sin? Sin is when the pinnacle of his creation, mankind, you and me, we who are made in his image, sin is when we, we break and transgress his law, which every single person has done because the Bible tells us that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And as a result of our sin, we are dead in our transgressions. We are separated from God. We're rebels. We're enemies of God, deserving death, and God's eternal judgment in hell, we are lost and incapable of rescuing ourselves. And I know some of you are thinking, this doesn't sound like good news, and you'd be right. But it's not until we reckon with the bad news about ourselves and admit that we are a sinner in desperate need of a savior that the good news will ever make any sense. And the good news is, God has made a way. The solution to our eternally damning predicament is Christ. We've already seen that throughout the book of John already in our study. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said in John 14, 6, of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. See, none of us sets the terms on which we come to God. He sets the terms. And he has made possible one and only one way to be forgiven. There is only one way to go from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God, and that's Jesus Christ. Because he lived a perfect life, since you and I can't. And he died in the place of sinners, like you and me, to bear the wrath of God against our sin. But did the grave hold him? No. No, he proved who he said he was on the third day when he rose from that tomb. And Romans 10 says, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. That's good news. And the Bible says our response to this good news is to repent to turn from our sin and turn to Christ. To turn to him by faith and trust him and him alone to save us. So I implore you, if you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ by faith alone to save you, do that today. Cry out for the mercy and forgiveness of God and follow him from this day forward. Jesus in John chapter three calls that being born again. And when the Lord Jesus begins that new relationship with you, 
He changes the direction of our lives and our appetites and desires soon follow. And we begin to do what he commands us to do because now we're no longer his enemies, we're his friend. That's the assumption that Jesus makes here. So he makes the assumption, but Jesus also makes the association in verse 15. Look at your Bibles in verse 15 because what Jesus is describing here is a new association that he has now with the disciples when he says, no longer do I call you what? What does he say? Servants, that's right. No longer do I call you servants. I want you to notice something though about verse 15. Jesus did not say that the disciples were no longer servants. He said he will no longer call them his servants. He will now address them as friends, and that's the change from servant to friend, and that's beautiful. But brothers and sisters, let's be clear. A Christian will always be a servant of Jesus because he's our king, and we serve him and bow to him and him alone. But because of what Christ has done for sinners like us, we are more than a servant. That's Jesus' point here. We are his friends. Because if one is merely a servant, as Jesus says in verse 15, look at it with me, the servant does not know what his master's doing. See, a servant doesn't have a close enough relationship with their master to know all that the master knows. A servant has a job to do, and beyond that, they don't need to know much. They just need to do their job, right? By the way, if you're raising little ones in the house right now, my encouragement to you would be don't spend a whole lot of time with little kids trying to answer the why question. There's two reasons for that. Nine times out of 10, they're asking that question as a stall tactic. We told our kids when they were little, you can ask why after you do what we told you to do. And number two, in the younger years, they don't need to know why. You're training them to trust your word and your authority when it doesn't make sense to them. Why? Because one day as they grow up, you're gonna want them to trust God's word and his authority when it doesn't make sense to them. See, for all those who are trusting in Christ for salvation, Jesus no longer calls us servants. We are still servants, but by his grace, we are more than that. We are friends. And that's the awareness he talks about. Letter C, keep reading in verse 15. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. This awareness is the difference between just merely being called a servant and now being called a friend. And honestly, the use of the word friend sort of gets lost on most of us because of, well, Facebook. Let's be honest. Some of you think you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of friends. You don't. The word for friends here in verse 15 could be translated as beloved ones. Because the root word that, comes, that it comes from is one of the other Greek words for love. So this is not a superficial relationship that Jesus is referring to here. No, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's the Savior. He's the King of Kings. He's our Lord, our Master. So he is not our friend in the way that we typically think about casual friendships. We don't call him our buddy or the big guy upstairs. No, he says in verse 15, I have called you friends. 
for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. That's the awareness that matters. What Jesus is referring to here is all that the Father gave to the Son to teach the disciples over the past three years about what it means to follow him. And boy, it's easy for us to be envious of the disciples, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, they got to be taught by Jesus in person. How cool is that? But if you're in Christ today, you have way more than they had. Because at this time, all the disciples had in written form was the Old Testament. But now you and I have the complete canon of Scripture. We have it all. There's no new revelation necessary. There's no new truth. What's in the text is enough. It's sufficient for us. And here's the key, friends. The ability to understand spiritual truth is something that is only given to those Jesus calls his friends, his beloved ones. What an awesome privilege for all who are in Christ today that that we have his word and we can know the truth of Christ and the freedom that that brings us. So, Jesus has covered how he loves his followers, how he addresses his followers, and finally on your outline, how Jesus chooses his followers is what he deals with in that last verse. How Jesus chooses his followers. Now, there may be some of you who haven't really thought about how Jesus chooses his followers. Uh, And if you're relatively new, to the Bible, or maybe you're a fairly new Christian, it might be news to you that Jesus chose you before you ever chose him. But that's the reality. Letter A would be the reality. That's the reality of salvation. It's what the Bible teaches. And reality is always our friend, right? So I want to challenge you to consider the implications of Jesus' statement here in verse 16. Look at it with me in your Bibles. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Now, this is not just an accurate statement for the disciples in this particular moment, but it accurately applies now to all those who trust Christ today. You did not choose me, but I chose you. We ought to just pause and thank Jesus for that because it's a helpful clarification It's an amazing breath of fresh air that my salvation is ultimately determined by Jesus choosing me, not me choosing him. Do you understand the significance of that, friends? As Jesus is explaining to his disciples here how all this is gonna work once he's gone, he's reassuring them that their ability to faithfully abide in him is directly tied to him choosing them. In that time and day, A young man wanted to follow a rabbi, the young man would choose the rabbi he would follow. But once again, Jesus is countercultural. And what he does is the opposite. He says, No, 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 no. (laughs) I chose you. And I know some of you might say, Well, I chose Jesus. Mm, That's not the whole story. He chose us. Any choosing we did or will do is because Christ first chose us. Apostle Paul makes that very clear in Ephesians 3 through 14. And I put that passage on your sermon outline this morning so you can go back maybe today or sometime this week and meditate on Ephesians 1. Because in Ephesians 1, specifically verse 4, 
It makes it very clear that God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. Don't take my word for it. Go read it yourself and you'll see how God has predestined us for adoption. All because of God's choosing. The Apostle Peter makes a similar point in 1 Peter 1.3 as, as he refers to God the Father when he states, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friends, there is only one final determinative cause of salvation, and it is not my choosing or your choosing. It's because he chose us. And did you notice that Jesus just didn't say he chose them, but he appointed them? The word appointed in the original language there means to assign a duty to. So we have a duty. He chose us for a purpose. Now, one of the reasons that we instinctively sort of push back on the doctrine of election, as this is historically known, is because of our pride, if we're honest. As sinners, we like getting credit, right? But this is precisely why Jesus made his choosing of the disciples so clear. Lest they think that because they were a disciple, they were a better person than someone who wasn't. Jesus reminds them, no, no, no. He chose them and appointed them for the glorious duty of following him. I said earlier, I wanted to challenge you if you'd never given this topic much thought, and my encouragement to you is simply keep reading your Bible. I've recommended some good books on your outline this morning, but just keep reading your Bible. It doesn't come automatically to any of us to think as God thinks. But the Bible teaches that we are created beings and that there is only one creator and only he is sovereign over all things, including the salvation of sinners. So if you're in Christ, the reality is he chose you. And there's a reason that he did so. That's what he says next in verse 16. The reason, let her be on your outline, keep reading. Look at it in your Bibles. Jesus says, I have chosen you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. That's the reason that Christ chooses any sinner. He doesn't choose us based on our merit or our worth or our potential. Heaven help us. But the reason he has chosen us is to bear fruit. We talked about that a lot last Sunday. That there's no such thing as a fruitless Christian. Salvation changes us and God produces spiritual fruit in those who belong to Christ. See, his choosing of us doesn't just initially affect us, but in an ongoing way, it keeps changing us, which means that salvation is not just initiated by God, but it's sustained by God, and it's completed by God as well. I have a bit more to say about that this week in the Beyond the Notes podcast, but just to be clear, the reason that he gives here, that he chooses us, is to bear fruit. So Jesus gives us the reality, he gives us the reason, and now finally, Letter C, he gives us the result of his choosing his followers. The result for those he chooses, look at verse 16, keep reading, is that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now Jesus has already made similar statements to this, to the disciples earlier in John 14, and not only that, but earlier in the verses we looked at last Sunday in John 15. He basically says the same thing there that he does here at the end of verse 16. 
But see, we are tempted to look at these whatever you ask statements from Jesus. We tend to look at them as a blank check to get whatever we want in prayer. But friends, they're not blank checks. But oh, the false teachers of the prosperity gospel today just love to use these verses to peddle their lies. But Jesus is not promising here to supply everything anyone asks for. He's not Aladdin's genie. He's the Lord. He's the one who is sovereignly orchestrating everything that's happening in the universe at every moment of every day. So that little bitty phrase there in verse 16 where he says, in my name, that's important. Because in my name speaks to both the character of the Son and the will of the Father, both. See, Jesus has already made a point that what God graciously does in those he chooses is he grows us up spiritually. And as we grow up spiritually, our prayers will change and they will align more with the will of God. And if you've walked with Jesus for a while, and many of you have, you already know that often God's will is very different than your will, right? So the prayer of whatever you ask the Father in my name, that prayer must leave room for God's will to override our will when what we are praying for does not match the sovereign will he has for us. Again, one of the reasons people don't like the doctrine of election is because it strips us of our pride. We want to have ultimate control of our lives, don't we? We want to be sovereign, right? Oh, friends, there is one who is way better at that than we are. One who is infinitely wise, one who is kind and loving, one who is in ultimate control of all things. That's Jesus, our gracious Savior. And even though he has no obligation to do so, he calls all those who follow him his friends.